First Peter chapter two, beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. It's important that I remind you of the big theme of the book of First Peter. Remember, if we were to sum it up in one word, it would be suffering. And if we were to sum it in a single sentence, it's saints who are suffering. Peter is writing to saints who are suffering, and he's going to provide them with encouragement. How are Christians to respond to hardship and suffering in the world? Now, remember in the first chapter, Peter encouraged the Christian to consider his or her salvation. In the second chapter, Peter has exhorted the Christian to renounce sin and to renounce sinful thinking and to embrace a new life and a new walk. He says, consider your relationship to Christ and others in verses 4 through 12 in the second chapter. Respect for civil authorities in verses 13 through 16. Employers in verses 18 through through 20 and in verse 17 for everyone. Now, Americans bristle at the word submission. We don't like that word. It sounds way too much like surrender or yield, or bow down, or cave in, or relent, or defer. The word that we much prefer is protest. That's what we like. Because there's something fundamentally broken inside of us. And the rebellion begins against God. And the reality is that if you are in rebellion against God this morning, this message is going to make no sense to you whatsoever. Because if you can't submit to God, there's absolutely no way that you're going to be able to submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Now, our discussion, remember, takes place in the context of hardship and suffering. What is the purpose of submission to God and submission to one another? Well, it's to alleviate hardship and suffering. Now remember, submission implies and requires relationship. We submit to God through the Lordship of Jesus Christ because we know Him and love Him. We submit to God and Christ. Peter in the next chapter will write, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. But that's a battle that we're going to have to wage when we get to that chapter. (laughs) Peter will draw our attention on this issue of submission beginning in verse 13. And by the way, the theme is going to grow from here all the way to chapter 3. And it's going to continue through verse 13. 
Peter will write about our formal obligations. We're to submit as subjects in verses 13 through 17. And it's going to include an exhortation in verse 13. The extent to which we are to submit in verses 13 and 14. And then he's going to give an explanation in verses 15 through 17 in terms of the Lord in verse 15. In terms of our liberty in verse 16. In terms of our locality in verse 17. Now remember, remember, submission has a beneficial side. If you submit to the Lord and you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, things will go well. Make no mistake about it, the way of the transgressor is hard. If you submit to the authorities, things are going to go well for you. This last week I was in Mexico with my wife, my Wife's father died uh, several months now, and we were trying to settle the affairs of his estate. And guess what? Citizens of countries have privileges that aren't accorded to extranjeros, strangers, excuse me, to people who aren't citizens. Citizens of heaven have extraordinary benefits. And sometimes as Christians, we think that because we are citizens of heaven, we have no obligation or responsibilities on this earth. And you couldn't be more wrong. Look again in verse 13. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Look closely at that expression. Every ordinance of man. Particularly the adjective of man. In the original language, this word is anthropinos. Anthropinos comes from a, a word in, 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 the, in the Greek language. You know the word anthropos. It means man. Anthropology is the study of man. Here the word means human. The word translated ordinance is very interesting. It's the Greek word tesis. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in the New Testament, the word meant creation or that which has been created. So in our language and culture, when we read this sentence, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man, we tend to think of an ordinance as a rule or a regulation. As a matter of fact, the New American Standard translates this human institutions. The NIV translates this authority instituted among men. But in this context, it has some difficulties. And the reason why it has some difficulties is because the meaning is somewhat obscure. But whatever the meaning is, let's go from what's clear to what's not so clear. What is very clear about this passage, it means submit yourselves in the context of human society, of human family, of human work, of human government. We might think of it as family order and social order. It may be a reference to our fellow man because even human beings who are fallen, every single human being who has been placed on the planet earth by our God, who's created in the image of God, has an eternal soul that's going to last forever. And if you are of the opinion that the unbeliever has no value, you couldn't be more incorrect. The word submit is imperative. It means 
that we are to put ourselves in a position of support. And because it is imperative, it's not a suggestion. It's a strong command. And now I need you to understand something. Peter knew that he might be misunderstood. Peter has already called the Christians sojourners, pilgrims, aliens, exiles. He's called the Christian a citizen of heaven. And remember what I said, because people think that they're citizens of heaven. They have no obligations or responsibilities on the earth or towards the kingdoms of men. Peter is writing to a group of people who are being harassed by their government. They're being arrested by their government. They're being persecuted by their government. They're being killed by their government. Peter is writing to a group of people who are experiencing hardship and suffering, not just because of a downturn in the economy, not simply because of excess of taxes, not because of over-government regulation, but because of state-sponsored persecution. Nero has driven the Roman Empire to the brink of bankruptcy. And when Peter is writing these words, they're right on the precipice of a civil war. And the civil war, by the way, will break out in a matter of 18 months, the Roman Empire will have four emperors. Nero, Otho, Galba, Vespasian. It will become a bloodbath for the Roman Empire. Peter wants the reader to know that because we are Christians, we don't have a lesser responsibility. We have a greater obligation to obey the laws. Now the unsaved world watches the Christian. And so we have to abstain from sin. By the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. The Christian, the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately responsible to God. But the fact that our ultimate allegiance lies to God. We're still to submit to lawful human authority. To human institutions which the Lord God has ordained. We're to embrace laws. We're to respect authority. Unless we are compelled by those laws. Or unless we are compelled by that authority. To disobey what God has clearly outlined. Peter, who wrote this epistle, is the person who's famous in the book of Acts when the Sanhedrin says to him, you stop preaching in the name of Jesus and you stop teaching in the name of Jesus. And it is Peter who is recorded as saying in the book of Acts, you judge whether or not it's more important to obey God or to obey man. Now the word submission translates the Greek word hupo, tasso. It's a military term. And it literally meant to fall into rank or to arrange in formation under a commander. In our culture and society, you probably had a mother or a father, a grandfather or a grandmother who said, boy, girl, get in line. This is actually sort of our way of saying, submit, get in line, fall into line. That's the idea. The Bible supports the principle of lawful submission, of submission to lawful authorities. The writer of Proverbs chapter 24, verses 21 and 22 says, My son, fear the Lord and the king. 
Do not associate with those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from both of them? By the way, submission to rulers is right because a God appoints the rulers. And those who are given to change, listen carefully, are those rebels who seek to overthrow the government. Now, the Roman government was corrupt. I could spend several weeks outlining and characterizing the corruption of this culture. Nero engaged in openly perverse sexual behavior. His predecessor <laughs> was Claudius, and Claudius's predecessor, I should know this, was Caligula. And Caligula was so wicked and so perverse that he actually married his own horse in a ceremony. In other words, his perversion didn't just go to men, women, and small boys. It, it even extended to bestiality. The Roman government was corrupt. Nero engaged in the most perverse behavior that you can imagine. The Romans had a sophisticated legal system, but it was often corrupt. The Roman people practiced abortion and infanticide. They abused women. There was open immorality and there was violence. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand Peter's words. Peter adds to the command a motive. He doesn't just simply say submit, but he's going to give a motive. We honor and obey earthly authority. Look what it says in the text. For the Lord's sake. I grew up in a world where I was taught to rebel against authority. And to distance myself from authority. I grew up in the generation that said, don't trust anyone over 30. And... <laughs> Who would have thought by the time we got to the 1980s, I was out way over 30. I grew up in a world where you protested everything, where you rebelled against everything, where you questioned everything. Forget about the government. My rebellion against the government was because I had a rebellion against God. I was unwilling to even believe that God had any rights over my life or over my heart. And so when Peter adds, for the Lord's sake, he's basically telling the Christian, we honor and obey earthly authority in an effort to honor the Lord. In other words... We acknowledge God's sovereignty over human affairs. Robert Culver writes, quote, God alone has sovereign rights. Democratic theory is no less unscriptural than divine right monarchy. But whatever means men come to positions of rulership by dynastic descent, aristocratic family connection, plutocratic material resources. You may not know what that means, but it means they come to a position of power because they happen to be the wealthiest person in the that place or by democratic election there is no power but of God Romans 13 1 furthermore civil government is an instrument not an end men are proximate ends but only God is ultimate end the state owns listen carefully 
The state owns neither its citizens, nor their properties, nor their minds, nor their bodies, nor their children. All these belong to their creator God, who has never given the state rights of eminent domain on the human mind and the human heart. I agree with that. God created family. God created government. God created the church. Marriage is God's institution. The government is God's institution. The church is God's institution. Peter's not the only New Testament writer who exhorts the believer concerning his or her relationship to the government. Paul gives four motives in Romans chapter 13 for obeying human government. He says, hey, for wrath's sake in verses 1 through 4, for conscience sake in verses 5 through 7, for love's sake in verses 8 through 10. And then he reiterates what Peter says in this this particular portion of scripture, for the Savior's sake. In Romans 13, 1 and 2, it says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and whoever resists will bring judgment on themselves. Is that unqualified? No, it's not. It it, it isn't unqualified in the sense that are there exceptions? Of course there are. Remember what I just said? Peter himself disobeys the Sanhedrin. Remember the Hebrew children when they were faced with the the statue on the plains of Dura and Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down to the statue. And they said, we're not going to do it. And he said, if you don't do it, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And what happened? They got thrown into the fiery furnace. When Daniel was, was... a part of a scheme whereby only people could petition the king and Daniel refused to cease from praying to the Lord God. But as his, was his custom, he simply continued to do what he had always done. He would get up and he would pray. He would pray openly and he would pray publicly. And when he prayed openly and publicly, it was a violation of the law. He didn't cease to honor God and he also didn't defy the authority. They said, hey, guess what? You're going to get thrown into the lion's den. Now, by the way, there was a supernatural deliverance for them. But is there always a supernatural deliverance? No. The children of Israel said to the king, look, one way or another, we're going to be delivered. We're either going to be delivered by God supernaturally, or we're going to be delivered from your hands into the king's hand who governs all authority. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, it says. We, listen carefully, we submit to human laws because we submit to heaven's Lord. We submit to human laws because we submit to heaven's lords. Peter, like I said, refused to obey a direct command from the Sanhedrin. And this is going to become important later when we talk about other forms of submission, particularly in chapter 3, when it says, wives likewise submit, be submissive to your own husbands. Does that mean that we submit to the government in wickedness or immorality or corruption? No. Does that mean that a wife has to submit to her husband in sinful practices? 
No. It can't mean submit to committing crimes. And it can't mean submit to moral perversity. That can't be the meaning. And so in verse 14, we read, or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Martin Luther defied Pope and Prince at the Diet of Worm. John Bunyan refused to quit preaching when the establishment church refused to issue him a license and he went to jail where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And so again, we think about this in a context. And then in verse 14, to governors, he goes from kings to governors and Peter has given the believer the command, submit yourself. He's given the motive for the Lord's sake. And now he begins to talk about how far does this submission extend and who are we to submit to? You know what? We sometimes forget the purpose of government. The reason Peter cites for obedience to the government include the fact that government, number one, is given by God. Number two, government is a human institution allowed by God to provide safety and security to the citizen. The government exists to provide justice and to execute justice. Listen carefully. Don't misunderstand me. They exist to exercise justice and execute justice based on the will of God and based on the nature of God and based on the character of God. You may not believe this, but the government is supposed to execute justice on God's behalf. The reason why, again, this is going to be important to each and every one of you, because the whole idea of submission is linked to friendship and relationship. We submit to God because he's our Lord. We submit to Jesus because he's our Lord. We submit to the government because we have privileges as citizens. And wives submit to their husbands because of the privileges associated with relationship. Now, again, the government is supposed to execute justice on God's behalf. And by the way, the word translated governor is hegemon. We have a kind of a political term in our own culture called hegemony. Um, This word was the word that was used to describe Pilate and Felix and Festus. These were Roman procurators who received their ability to exercise authority based on their appointment by the king. So here's the question. Were governors always just? No. Were they sometimes corrupt? Were they sometimes just plain incompetent? Are our political officials unjust? Are they sometimes corrupt? And if the current circumstances look like anything that we can draw some sort of meaningful conclusion, are they sometimes just plain incompetent? (laughs) Well, that means we don't have to submit, right? Wrong, yeah, wrong, wrong. Stupidity, corruption, incompetence doesn't get the Christian off the hook. 
One Bible teacher writes, the purpose of government includes, quote, the restraint of evil, promotion of the public good, punishment of the wrongdoer, stemming from the overarching truth that God establishes all authority to maintain peace and order. Does the government always do that? Do they sometimes fall short? (laughs) Again, the command doesn't exclude those authorities who make bad or unjust decisions. The Bible recognizes the fact that rulers make unwise choices. Joseph was thrown into prison. The Hebrew children into a fiery furnace. The list could go on and on and on. Most notably, it was our Lord and Savior himself who was brought before unjust judges for an unjust judgment. But he didn't hide from it and he didn't walk away from it. You want to know why? Because of his nature and because of his character and also because he was thinking about you. You may find that incomprehensible. But all of human history revolves around the fact that Jesus loves you. All of the prophecies, all of his coming, his unjust treatment, his execution, his subsequent resurrection from the dead. It really was for you. And in verse 15, he gives an explanation. Look what it says. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Peter, now think about this for just a moment. Peter is given the command to submit. He's given the motive for submission. Do this for Jesus' sake. And now he's going to give a reason for the submission. The reason is clear and fundamental and basic. It's for evangelism. It's to close the mouth of the gospel critics. The word silence means to restrain or muzzle or render speechless. The idea is putting a rag in somebody else's mouth so as to make speech impossible. The word Peter uses for ignorance is not simply a basic lack of facts or knowledge. The word Peter uses is agnosian. It's it's a word which means a hostile rejection of the truth. We might think of it as a kind of willful commitment to reject the truth intensified by the word foolish. This last week, in the last couple of days, there there was a news article that about 10 people were killed in Afghanistan who were part of a a Christian outreach group who were providing medical care to the most desperate and difficult people living in Afghanistan. An ophthalmologist and a medical doctor took four days to get to a particular place until the road ran out. And then for four days, they marched into the most obscure place in the village in order to bring medical supplies to remove cataracts from people's eyes. To provide the most basic human medical treatment. And they'd been doing this since 1964. The leader of the group was, had devoted his life to ministering, to loving, to learning the language, to providing for these men and women, to love them and serve them. And, and then the Taliban took credit for massacring the whole group. They killed them. 
And you know what they accused them of? Being spies for the government. And for being Christians. That they were trying to convert people to Christianity. Were they? Do you think opening blind eyes? Do you think healing the sick? Do you think providing love and grace and mercy and and hope to people who had no hope? Is, Is that a wicked, wrong thing to do? Oh, by the way, do you know how many Taliban outreaches there are to people to remove cataracts? How many do you suppose there are? Oh, that would be zero. See, now you're laughing, but you understand my point. That's part of the point that's being made. It's very hard to argue with grace and mercy. Foolish means senseless, without reason. Actually, in the ancient world, it expressed a kind of moral insanity. Who are these foolish men? Are they the pagans in the Greco-Roman Empire? Yeah. Are they Jews who refuse to accept Jesus? Yes. Does it include Christians who hold weird, contradictory, or even erroneous ideas about God, Jesus, and the church? I suspect that Peter may have had the unbeliever in mind. It's, it, it certainly seems to have at least some application for some people who have a wrong idea about God and a wrong idea about Jesus and a wrong idea about the church. What closes the mouth of the critic of Christianity? It's very hard to argue against personal, moral integrity. It's very hard to argue against purity of life. It's very hard to argue against a demonstration of kindness. You know, these Christians and these ministries, they're such self-serving hypocrites. That's why we go to the poorest section of the front range and fill backpacks with school supplies for impoverished children. How many atheists are providing backpacks for children this, this week? Oh, that, wait, none? So the agnostic, the atheist, the critic, the skeptic, they have no desire to help the needy or the poor? What closes the mouth of the critic? Paul, writing to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one. I'm still working on that, ladies and gentlemen. To be peaceable. To be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul's point, it's not who you are anymore. That's not why you live. You don't live to find fault. You live to find faith. You don't live to demonstrate hate, but love. You live to provide hope and grace and mercy. And here's the point that is being given. We allow our beliefs to be open to public inspection. 
We don't hide our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not embarrassed by it. Remember what Paul wrote? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. Listen carefully. We have nothing to fear from impartial observers. If the government comes, if the critic comes, if the skeptic comes and they look at your life, what will they see? Slanders will die when they are exposed fairly and honestly to the truth. And our good works are supposed to point people to Jesus, to the love of God, to God's mercy in Christ, to the salvation that's found by God and is of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord God visits the world in the person of Jesus. And this is a faithful saying. Remember what Paul wrote, that Jesus came into into the world to save sinners. And he said, of whom I am chief. That's because he never met me. Can you imagine Christians having a wickedness contest in the first century? Who's, who's the worst of the worst? Paul goes, I am. <laughs> and you go, no, I am. How wicked were you? Were you a persecutor and a killer of Christians? Paul adds to this statement that he was unworthy of such salvation. But he embraced the invitation of Jesus to receive salvation and forgiveness and to be used by the Lord Jesus to be a model of what it means to be a sinner saved by grace. A sinner rescued by love, a sinner transformed for the purpose of reflecting the heart of God in a hurting world. Now remember what, why Peter is writing this. Peter is writing to a group of people under intense persecution. He's not writing this to add to their persecution, but to remind them that if suffering leads to the transformation of lives, then he's willing to bear whatever burden is necessary. He talks about liberty. Look at verse 16, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Now, again, follow his train of thought. Peter has, number one, given a command for submission. Number two, a motive for submission. Do this for the, for the sake of Jesus. Number three, the extent of submission, kings and governors. And then the reason for submission, to silence the critics. And now Peter is talking about our attitude in submission. Oh, I'll submit because I love Jesus and this is what Jesus wants me to do. Hey, it's true. Jesus does want you to do this, but is that your attitude in submission? No, we act like free people. We're free. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the condemnation of the law. We are free from the law's penalty, it says in Galatians 3.13. We're free from Satan's control, Romans 16.20. We're free from this world's control, 1 Corinthians 9.19. We're free from death's power. That's what it says in Romans 8.38. We're free. We, we're doing this not because we, we have to. We're doing it because we want to. 
we're free. And Peter warns us not to use our freedom as a cloak or as a device or as a covering for evil. And here the word evil means baseness. It means that which lacks real value. And the word cloak appears only here in the New Testament. It's a word that meant to cover or a covering or even a cover-up. And that seems to be the idea here. We're not to use our freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil or for vice. To take advantage of the generosity of others. To exploit people in difficult circumstances. Liberty is precious. Freedom was never intended to be freedom to do that which is wicked or wrong. Because you're free in Christ, you don't go, dude, we're free in Christ. Let's go pick up some chicks. That's not the meaning of the verse. Hey, we're free in Christ. Let's go get drunk. That's not the meaning of the verse. We're free to take advantage of somebody's ignorance. That's not the meaning of the verse. Freedom was never intended to include wickedness or evil or to violate the word of God or the character of God. We live as free. We are free citizens. But we're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, the word rendered servant here is bond servant. It's the lowest level of service in the Greco-Roman world. If I were to put it in modern terms, somebody might say, well, what do you do? I'm the janitor. Well, what's lower than a janitor? Janitor trainee. They're in the lowest of the lowest of the lowest rung. And see, sometimes what Christians will do is they'll say, I don't really have to do this because what they're asking me to do is wrong or it's unjust. Does the claim that a law is unjust make it unjust? Not necessarily. William Barclay writes, quote, any great Christian doctrine can be perverted into an excuse for evil. The doctrine of grace can be perverted into an excuse for sinning to one's heart's content. The doctrine of the love of God can be sentimentalized into a defense for breaking the law of God. The doctrine of the life to come can be perverted into a reason for neglecting the life here in this world. And there is no doctrine so easy to pervert as the doctrine of freedom and the doctrine of Christian liberty. He goes on and he says, quote, there are hints in the New Testament that it was frequently so perverted. Paul tells the Galatians that they've been called to liberty, but they, might not, they must not use that liberty as an occasion for the flesh, to do as the flesh wills in Galatians 5.13. In 2 Peter, we read of those who promise others liberty, but who themselves are servants of corruption in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. So what's the point? We're bondservants. We're servants of the Lord. We, listen carefully, we are not servants of our own corrupt ideas. We are not servants of our personal musings. We are not servants of, our, of some sort of ideological mindset that is distant from the things of God and the things of Christ. We're called to serve the Lord, not our personal desires. And in verse 17, he talks about the locality. Honor all people, love the brother, fear God, honor the king. Now again, follow with me Peter's thinking. 
the, the command. Submit. The motive for the Lord's sake. The extent. Kings. Governors. The reason. So that we can silence the mouth of critics. The attitude that we demonstrate. Because we're servants. And now Peter gives the application of submission. Broadly, it falls into four categories. Believers are to honor all people. Believers are to love the brotherhood. Believers are to honor God. Believers are to honor the king. And guess what? That pretty much covers everyone. Honor everyone. Well, doesn't that cover everyone? Yeah. (laughs) So why does he break it down? Well, think about it. Honor is not extended simply to the rich and the powerful. John Climacus said, quote, Just as anyone who climbs a rotten ladder risks his life, so are honors and power a danger for humility. Think about it. The more powerful you are, the more rich you are, the more humility becomes a real challenge. We're to honor all people, rich, poor, young, old, believer, unbeliever. We honor people because they're human beings created in the image of God with an eternal soul of inestimable value. If you were to take the combined wealth of all of the world, compare it to the value of a single soul who could go to hell, there is no comparison. We honor all people, not because of the absence of God or Christ in their life. We honor them not because of their rebellion. We honor them not because of wickedness or sin. We honor the people for any virtue, any good, any order in their life. We honor them because they contribute to work or to the defense of our nation or the structure of our culture or society. We honor them not simply for what they can give, but even in what they can't give. They're to be honored, esteemed, respected. Human beings are not to be mistreated. No matter their social, financial, political condition, whether poor or rich, clean or corrupt, evil or righteous. And we take our cue from Jesus. How did Jesus deal with the rich and the poor and the corrupt? Remember his most vitreous Criticism came for religious hypocrites. We're to love the brotherhood. Now, this is important to me. Because, note, it doesn't say just honor the brothers. It says love them. I think that's important. You might overlook that. We love them without regard to color or race or origin or nationality. We love them as brothers and sisters with a tenderness that displays and reflects our common spiritual birth, our common spiritual belief, our shared commitment to the message and the mission of Jesus. And I want you to note something else about this passage. We demonstrate a godly affection Because if love means anything, it has to mean caring for one another, teaching one another, feeding one another when necessary, supporting one another when necessary, helping one another when necessary, protecting one another when necessary, sharing with one another when necessary, so that we can experience fellowship with one another, prayer and worship with one another. Remember, love is opposed to criticizing, backbiting, grumbling, murmuring, complaining, and being divisive. And he says, fear God. But we live in a culture and a nation 
where those two words are utterly foreign. Almost meaningless. We fear God, not because our nation does. We fear God because he is God. Because our life, our breath, our existence is in his hands. His will and his commands are to be obeyed. We fear what will happen if we disregard the Lord. And what causes apathy and indifference toward the Lord. It could be an incomplete view of what the Bible teaches about judgment. You may love grace and you may love mercy. And you should love grace and you should love mercy. But if you don't understand judgment, then you don't understand God. Because the reality is there will come a point where grace will end and judgment will begin. Honor the king, he says, or the supreme authority. Now, we tend to think that the supreme authority in our government is the president or the Congress or the judicial branch of government. I would have said that too, probably yesterday. But then I realized something, that the supreme authority in the United States of America is not the President of the United States. It's not the Congress of the United States. It's not the Supreme Court of the United States. The supreme authority in our government is the Constitution of the United States of America. Do we live in a culture and a society that insists that the President honor the Constitution? What do you think the answer is? Yeah. What about the Congress? Should they honor the Constitution? What do you think the answer is? What about the judicial branch of the government? Should they honor the Constitution? Yeah. And when the President, the Congress, and the judicial branch of the government do not honor the Constitution, <laughs> we have rights and redresses and grievances and ways that we can compel them to do so. Hopefully they will. We honor the supreme authority. We're a free people. And we have a holy obligation as citizens of heaven and earth to pray for and work for the right to love the Lord and live in peace and have the freedom to preach the gospel. I want you to keep in the back of your mind when Peter wrote these words, Nero is the emperor. The world is on the precipice of collapse. The believers were under pressure and persecution and imprisonment and suffering and hardship. But Peter reminds the believers, we're a people who love peace. We love discipline and righteousness and justice. And we understand something. When believers obey these principles, it leads to genuine credibility to the people who are watching us. We might even call this citizenship evangelism. We're to be good citizens. And here's the deal. We're to be good citizens in extreme circumstances. Now remember... Peter's been writing this letter. He's talked about salvation. He's talked about the scriptures. He's talked about sanctification. He's talked about separation. And now he talks about submission. We submit to human laws because of heaven's Lord. 
We submit to the supreme authority and the subordinate authorities. We submit to the will of God. We submit to the will of God in spite of the wickedness of men. And later, Peter's going to urge us to submit as servants. And finally, he's going to exhort us to submit as saints. That's what we're going to look at when we continue our study. And we're going to discover something. That just as we have a relationship to the Lord, and just as we have a relationship to each other, and just as we have a relationship to the church, we also have a relationship to our government. We'll have more to say about that down the road. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for our stinking, wicked, rebellious, protesting hearts. Lord, there are things inside of us that don't want to obey you. (laughs) We don't want to submit to you. We resist the word of God and the will of God. And sometimes we resist in such a way and we rebel in such a way and it makes suffering and hardship even worse. And Lord, clearly it's not our desire to add insult and injury to an already difficult life. But Lord, we want our lives and our hearts to reflect the love of God and the word of God and the character of God. Lord, we pray that we could exercise citizenship evangelism. Lord, we pray that our lives and our love and the things that we do in our community will be there as a testimony to your great grace, your mercy. Lord, we invite people to look at our lives that, Lord, they not only listen to what we say, but they watch what we really do and that they will be astonished and that once again the words of Jesus would come true in our lives that they would see our great love for the Lord and our great love for one another. And again, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for what limited way we might be able to be used by you for your grace and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.